sermon text this morning is from 1 John chapter 5, verses 6 through 12. Hear now the word of the Lord. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he is born concerning his Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his Son. And this is the testimony, that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your testimonies. Lord, for the ways in which you have testified to us through the Apostle John, and Lord, now through the Word as it is delivered up to us. Lord, we thank you for this mercy. Lord, in a season when your testimonies are all around us, as we reflect on the stories and as they, as the songs come over the airwaves, we pray that, that you would clear our attention clear our minds, grant peace to our hearts, that we might give proper attention to the testimonies that they come to us now. Testify to us through your spirit. May your spirit come and open the words and grant the sense that we might commune together over the truths of what you have given us in your son. We pray this in your name. Amen. It was in 1972 that a series of unpublished essays and speeches from C.S. Lewis, now quite a few years after his death, were collected into a volume that is the very title of the sermon today, God in the Dock. It's not a title that Lewis himself chose, but it was an analogy that he gave in one of those essays that was collected in that book. It was an analogy where he said, modern human beings, speaking of our types, rather than seeing themselves as standing before God in judgment, prefer to see themselves as placing God on trial and standing in judgment over Him. Sounds like a harsh thing to say, but we have a lot of corroborating evidence to prove that that was the case. Maybe you could think back to 2001 and the Bill Connolly film, The Man Who Sued God. 
It's about a fisherman whose boat was destroyed by what was referred to as an act of God by the insurance companies. He decided that he would sue God since it was an act of God. But the way that he would do that would be by suing the religious organizations all across the world, for they are God's representatives on the earth, and it's kind of hard to find God as to how to sue him. But ultimately, he couldn't win the case. A few years later, 2008, Ernie Chambers, as some of you might remember, state senator of Nebraska, decided also to file a suit against God seeking an impermanent adjunction against God's harmful activities against innumerable persons. That's a direct quote. Including constituents of the plaintiff, who the plaintiff has the duty to represent. Now, this was actually a political maneuver by Mr. Chambers. He was trying to to make a spectacle of the court to show that there are way too many frivolous court cases in Nebraska. Not just in Nebraska, but of course in Nebraska. Not surprisingly, the suit was dismissed by the judge because it was determined that we weren't sure how to notify God of the filing of the lawsuit, seeing that he does not have an address. Now, it's kind of funny to think about suing God. It's maybe in one level very sad to think about suing God, but if we were really honest, I'm sure there's a number of us in here who wouldn't mind subpoenaing God for a trial give some explanation for some things that have happened in our lives when things have not gone according to our plans. But we don't have to wait to try to subpoena God because God is willing to take the stand on His own initiative. He brings His own witness. And when He brings His own witness, He brings such overwhelming evidence, such airtight arguments that it really is an open and shut case so that every plaintiff who brings a charge is hushed because the witnesses that he brings are witnesses that can't be assailed. In the text before us, John tells us that God takes the stand and he's come to bring testimony. And the testimony that he's come to bring is not necessarily the testimony that we always want to hear. It's it's the testimony of his love. His love that's so strong and so permanent and so real that it covers, in a sense, makes null and void the kind of frustrations and concerns and oddities that we experience in life that we feel like he owes us an explanation for. The way Job must have felt. When he, in a sense, was calling God to explain why it is he allowed the things that happened to Job to happen. In the end, Job realizes that God is willing to take the stand. But when God takes the stand, watch out. He'll have plenty of evidence for why he does what he does. The greatest evidence of all will be the evidence of his love. In 1 John chapter 5, that's what we want to look at. We want to look at the testimony of God. 
We want to see the content of the witness that God gives to us, which John believes is to assure our hearts. But then we want to see that this witness is not merely meant as objective evidence. It's meant to be internalized within us. We want to see the testimony of God. We want to see the testimony of God in us. And then when the testimony of God gets in us, here's the fascinating thing. We start giving testimony. The testimony of God comes through us. And before you know it, we're not calling him to the witness stand any longer to explain why it is he's done what he's done. But instead, we gladly take the witness stand on his behalf to explain exactly what he's done. Let's look first at the testimony of God. It's really clear that this is the focus of 1 John 5, 6 through 12, because in these six verses, the word testify or testimony shows up eight times. But what's interesting about that is that it's not a testimony like you and I tend to think of or witnesses as we tend to think of. We've been told that we are witnesses. We tend to think of ourselves as testifying. No, not in this case. This is God who's bringing the testimony. You can see it in 9. If we receive the testimony of men, then the testimony of God is greater. This is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. The testimony that John wants to talk about is the testimony that God has revealed in what we must claim as his greatest witness, Jesus himself. The second person of the Trinity, the Son of God incarnate. The reason why it is that we're celebrating the season of Advent, the baby born in the manger. This is the witness of God. But notice what he said there in verse 9. He says, this is the testimony of God. That he is born concerning his son. Well, what is the this is he referring to? Well, of course, he's referring to the verses just previous, verses 6 to 8. It's there where we actually see the very content of the testimony. And not surprisingly, John here likely paying attention to the Old Testament law. Some of you might remember from your studies and reading through the Bible this year. I'm sure you have Deuteronomy 19 inflamed in your mind right now. Deuteronomy 19.15 says that there is no case that can be brought unless it's substantiated by two or three witnesses. Well, rest assured, God brings his own witnesses, and in this case, he brings three witnesses. Three, we might say, powerhouse witnesses, each coming with a vital contribution to what will be a single testimony of the divine's love. Each of these testimonies, without discrepancy, all John tells us that they agree and corroborate each other's testimony together to bring forth a persuasion that is overwhelming. What are these three witnesses? Or are there three? In fact, if you look at the text, it's a little confusing. Look first at the end of verse 6. It says that the Spirit is the one who testifies. He's the one who testifies. But then look in verse 7. For there are three that testify. The Spirit, the water, and the blood. Well, is there one? Or is there three? Well, of course, you know the answer, right? Yes. It is one and it is, it is three. In what sense? Well, in one sense, the Spirit alone is the one who testifies. Why? Because He's a living being. He's a living being. 
water and blood, as we will explore in just a minute, can't testify on their own. They need someone to speak for them. What is the Spirit referred to here in this text as the Spirit of truth? He's come to declare the truth. This is what John tells us in John 16, 13, quoting Jesus. When the Spirit comes, He will guide you into the way of all truth. The Spirit is the living being that speaks the truth. But what is the truth that the Spirit speaks? John, well, he brings two witnesses. The two witnesses combined with the third of the Spirit is this witness of blood and this witness of water. The truth that the Spirit sets forth is the evidences of water and blood forthcoming surrounding the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, that's clarifying. What in the world does that mean? What does he mean by water? What does he mean by blood? Well, as you can imagine, (laughs) scholars have sweat great drops of blood on this particular passage of Scripture. Over the centuries, many options have been offered. Our own Lutheran Calvin, for instance, understood the blood and the water as a reference to baptism and the Lord's Supper. St. Augustine argued in the third century that the water and the blood is an allusion to John 19, where we're told that the spear was thrust into the side of the crucified Lord and outflowed water mixed with blood. And when you begin to work through all of these interpretations and you begin to see the overwhelming evidence to what it is that John is trying to do as he's building a case here for the witness of God, it seems quite clear that Tertullian was maybe the first to stumble upon it and what has become, I think, the best understanding of the language of the water and the blood when he says it's shorthand for the beginning and the end of Jesus' ministry. The beginning of Jesus' ministry began with water. What am I referring to? Matthew 3, his baptism. It's there where we actually learn the identity of who Jesus is from the mouth of his very father. As Jesus came up from the water, the heavens were opened up, Matthew tells us. He saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, coming to rest upon him, and behold, a voice came from heaven. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That's a strong witness, my friends. When the Father from All eternity past, the creator and the sustainer of all there is, the one who masterminded the end from the beginning, the one who is the redeemer and sends the redeemer and concocts the plan of redemption, says, this is my son, the one in whom I am well pleased. John is telling us this evidence, this witness is a strong witness to the true and authentic identity to who Jesus is, and it's worthy of our trust. But we don't just get the testimony of the water, we get the testimony of the blood. What was the culminating moment of the completion of Jesus' ministry but the cross? It was there on the cross where we see the irony, almost the, we might say, the reversal of the experience of sonship that was so reveled in, in Matthew chapter 3, because it's there where Jesus on the cross receives the just judgment for our sin, and he he cries out to his Father that he no longer calls Father, but says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
experiencing the darkness of a broken communion with this father of whom he had known from all eternity the bonds of love. And in that moment saying, crying aloud, it is finished. That which was beginning in the baptism as the Spirit of God empowered and commissioned him was brought to end when he gave up his spirit, bleeding for the forgiveness of sins. It is indeed finished. Mission given in baptism, mission accomplished in the cross. Or we might put it this way. What is the Spirit's testimony? The Spirit's testimony is the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't the baptism of the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 3 a clear unfolding of who Jesus is as the Son of God? And isn't the cross the picture of what it is that He's come to do? These are the witnesses that are brought on the stand to speak to us about the power of God's love. And John believes there is a tremendous power when we begin to take in the evidences of God's witness for us. You see, when you, are, when you begin to know the love of God and you see what it is that He's actually done for you in Christ, then all of the other strange things that happen in your life, all of the other question marks of why the diagnosis, why the lost job, why my children didn't turn out how I dreamed, why my retirement was lost and drained, and why the relationship that I always dreamed I'd have with my spouse is not as I wished it would be, and all of the things that, that invade our lives as struggles and difficulties that often are overwhelming and do often preoccupy our minds are largely the louder voices that we listen to, when you begin to actually hear the loudest voice of all, the witness of God for you in Christ, you may not have everything settled explanation-wise over the strangeness of the things that happen in your life, but you know you can trust Him with what you don't know because if He's willing to give up His only beloved Son then you can trust Him with the things that don't make sense right now. If He's willing to save you at the cost of His only Son, surely you can trust Him with the things that don't make sense now. And truly, you can set your eyes towards the horizon by faith, knowing that one day, even as you might be able to do now over ports of your life, look back over things that used to be so confusing to you, but now you know why it is the Lord did what He did. Because you see what it did in you. And you see how it changed you. And you see that it made you a little more like Christ. You see, that's actually the purpose that John wants to, to lead us to. Because he says it's not just the testimony objectively, it's the testimony that gets inside. This is really point two. Look at verse 10. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony, where? In himself. 
The one who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is not one who says, oh yes, on paper it makes sense, the evidences are, are, are overwhelming. No, it's one who actually trusts in Jesus. It's one who actually trusts in Him and receives Christ into the heart. You get the testimony in you. The testimony's in you. Well, no, that's it. What in the world might that mean? Well, he tells us later in this text, it means that you get the life. Look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And where is that life found? The life is in his son. Receiving the testimony of the Lord inside of you is receiving the life of Christ, which is the eternal life. Do you think of yourselves as having the life of Christ in you? Do you live with the sense of the life of Christ in you? What does it mean to have the, the life of Christ in you? What would, that even, what would that even mean? Well, I think that verse 10 is the clue. You have the testimony there. Let's unpack that testimony. Let's remember that testimony. We said just a second ago that this testimony is a, is a testimony of spirit and water and blood. When we receive Christ, that testimony lodges within us. And all the way through this text, he's speaking of something that is, well, it's what the theologians call union with Christ. You see, he says we are to believe in the Son. In. It's a really important little preposition. We are to receive the testimony in ourselves. We are to receive life in. In the Son. It's just what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.16. Anyone who is in Christ is a new creature. New life comes forth from that one. Now, here's what's fascinating. We've got to see the evidences of that witness and what it would look like to sit in that witness, to abide in that witness, to begin to experience the life that comes from it. That's how a Christian walks. He walks by appropriating and living in the witness and the life of Christ as his life. That's really critical. That's the whole story of the Bible, you understand. You see, we were made to have union and communion with the Lord and walk in the cool of the day in the Garden of Eden. That's the most beautiful section, isn't it, in Genesis 2, where we know that God, in perfection with us, his creation, was to commune with us. We were to be in union with him. And I think one of the most well, probably one of the most heartbreaking questions in all of the scriptures is found in Genesis 3 when, when God the Father shows up and he asks the question, where are you? Where are you? You've probably never had to ask that question previously because they were, they were there. They wanted to be with them. Where are they in that moment? They're hiding they're hiding behind the trees. They, they don't want to be seen by him because they know they've eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They've, they've sinned against the Lord and he told them that if they sinned, they would surely die. That's the opposite of life, which is what we're talking about here in this context. All of a sudden, the one who was their life became to them something of a sign and a reality of death. They knew that they judgment. And the wrath of God. They, they knew that they could not longer dwell in union and communion with the Lord. And what I think we find in the Bible from Genesis 3 on is an up and down, topsy-turvy tale of how to get 
back into communion with God. How to get back into communion with God. That's what God has been pursuing. That's what God's pursuing for you. That's what He wants for you. He wants you to experience the union and the communion that He has now provided for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just merely objectively, but experientially. He wants it to be inside of you to receive the testimony in yourself so that it actually it actually reorients everything. Like Bernard of Clairvaux says, we must journey through the love of God to experience our union and communion with Him. Isn't that true? We've got to journey through, as it were, pass through the love of God. And what I think Clairvaux is trying to say is exactly what John is trying to say here. We have to internalize this testimony. Let's think about that for a minute. If we internalize the testimony of water blood, and spirit, what, would it, what does it mean to our identity? Let's take blood at the beginning. The witness of the blood of Christ gives you a brand new standing with the Lord. The witness of the blood of Christ gives you a brand new standing with the Lord. Paul writes in Ephesians 1.7, In Him we have redemption. Through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. That idea of blood, through the blood of Christ, that we gain a new standing, is what the theologians call atonement. That He has paid the penalty that once kept us away from Him. We were, there were, as it were, irreconcilable differences between us and God. Until someone removed what was irreconcilable. Who paid the penalty that kept us away from communion with the Lord. That was Christ. How did He do that? He did it through His blood. That word atonement, if you just simply break it apart, is at one meant. It means to bring us together into oneness with God. That's what atonement does. That's what blood does. And Peter tells us that Christ suffered for that sin, righteous, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. What that means is if you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ and you know the cleansing blood that has washed you as white as snow, that you understand the fact that there is no barrier now between you and him, you have open passport and intercession with the Lord through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ then you get to begin to experience the life of God by communing with Him in the truth and in prayer with His community in the means of grace. He being the mediator, the only mediator between God and man. This is the testimony and the witness of the blood. You've received a new standing with the Lord. Now here's what that means. It means you can't keep holding on to the guilt of past sin. That's sabotaging your joy and your walk with the Lord. Some of us say things like, yeah, I know the Lord's forgiven me, but I just haven't been able to forgive myself. No, you, you don't believe the Lord's forgiven you. You're not living yet into the greater testimony. The great, why do you... Why are you still hard on yourself? You're not yourself anymore. Christ in you. 
I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. Do you see, when God beholds you through the blood of Jesus, he sees Jesus, and he loves you. He loves you. And, and we sit there, and we mull over it, and we beat ourselves up with it, and we live under the false guilt. Do you realize it's been paid for by the Lord Jesus Christ? You are a son and a daughter of the king. There's nothing you could do to compromise his love. What an amazing freedom that is. What a remarkable joy. Do you feel the confidence and the strength of what it means to walk in the identity of the blood of Jesus having covered you and given you a position in the eyes of Almighty God? It's remarkable. Makes it foolish then, doesn't it? That we're hard on ourselves. Or we listen to other voices who want to keep bringing back the sins of our past or holding them over us. Oh, listen, if we listen to the judgments of men, how much greater is the judgment and the testimony of God? That's what this passage is teaching us. Do you see, if that testimony gets internalized, you begin to experience the life that is Jesus' life. Does that make sense? If, if If you're listening and you're hearing through the Spirit the words that are being preached right now, and it's making a difference, and you're feeling a joy kind of bubble up in your heart over what, is this true? Is this real? Oh, yes, it's real. I continue to forget it all week long. That testimony that's there, we're pressing it into your heart right now so that it will be inside of you so that the life of Christ will bubble out of you. You see, that's what God wants for you. He wants more and more for you to walk in that identity. All right, that's the testimony of the blood. What about the testimony of the water? The water is draws you into the family of God. So it draws you into the family of God. Think of the water as it was applied to Jesus in Matthew chapter 3. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. I bet there's some of us in this room who don't believe that God would say that about us. Because how can he be pleased with us? We are a wreck. We are a total mess. But do you know because Jesus, he was pleased with Jesus, And Jesus died for your sins, taking your place fully and giving you his perfect standing in righteousness that today as you're in the presence of the Lord, receiving as it were the Spirit's baptism, God looks down and he says upon you, son or daughter, I am pleased with you. You are my beloved child. This is why the old tradition in baptism was that we would often unfold the name of the child who was being baptized in the medieval and early church because it was then that they were given a Christian name. That's why when we baptize here, we say, what is your child's given name? And we baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We do that baptism, the promise of the Lord, because we're calling down, we're calling down the promise of sonship upon this child. That they would, as the Puritans would say, grow into the baptism, grow into the cleansing, grow into the water of being named as one who would be a Christian. You see, that's why we call ourselves Christians. We take on the name of Jesus. When we take on the name of Jesus, we get to be a part of the family of God. We are adopted into his family. This is why John had said earlier in the letter of First John. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called sons of God. Do you see? Do you see? 
What's the spirit of the witness or the witness of the spirit that draws us into the very life of God? I want you to think if we press the spirit into our lives. Jesus tells us in John 14, 6 that he's going to plead with the Father to send us the spirit and the spirit is going to be our advocate and our help and he's going to be with us first. At the end of Matthew chapter 28, you remember Jesus tells his disciples, listen, I've made, you, I've made you my witnesses to go into all nations, to baptize, notice, the entranceway into the Christian life, to teach all that I have commanded. And you know they must have thought, oh, that's a huge task. It's a massive task. What if someone came to you? What if Jesus came to you? And Jesus said, I want you to be a witness to all the nations of the world. Wow. It's an amazing task. I think we would just say, I think you need to get somebody else for that task. And he'd say, no, it's okay. I know that you're not equipped to do it. I've sent my spirit. Lo, I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. I'm pleased to use you, but you can't do it. But the spirit inside of you will do amazing things for my glory. I've rooted the power, my very power, the resurrection power, the Spirit who brings the power to convince us of the truth, the Spirit who brings the power to convict us of sin, the Spirit who brings the power to convert us by God's grace. I've lodged that within you, and as you speak, as you become my witnesses, I'm pleased to use my spirit to spread this glorious gospel as far as the curse is found. Isn't that powerful? It's absolutely powerful. You're his answer in that through the dwelling of the Holy Spirit who works in and through us. Here's what's beautiful. As the witness of God is internalized within us, the life of that witness begins to be expressed in and through us. To the degree that we've received witness of the Lord Jesus Christ inside of us, to that degree will the witness of Christ bubble out of us into the lives of those around us. How do you know if you're walking in this? Some of you are thinking, I'm not walking in this. <laughs> you're too excited up there. I'm not really that excited about this as you are. Some of you are thinking that. It's okay. It's all right. I'm a little demonstrative. It's okay. Here's what I think it would look like in just really ordinary life. If you're walking in the, the Spirit, what you will experience more in your life is a restfulness in the power of God. That's what this text is telling us. Do, do, you, know, do you know why you're so tired and on edge? working in the energy of the flesh not in the spirit you're trying to muscle your way into the Christian life and through it by bowing up under the power of the flesh and you wonder why you're not making any headway you can't move further in the Christian life if you're committed to using a power that's not of Christ you need the power of Christ the only way to receive the power of Christ is to be needy. 
is to be a receptacle, is to be open, is to receive the testimony. You've got to pursue it, but your pursuit is not in your own power. It's the pursuit to receive the power that only comes in the Spirit. I love the way Francis Schaeffer put this. Some of you know we've recently read Francis Schaeffer in some of our officer training meetings. He says we have to be disciplined and passive. Meaning we have to pursue the Spirit in order to receive from the Spirit the power that only He can give. I mean, I want to tell you something. The world will tell you the moment that you feel like you've got the world by the tail, you're ready. (laughs) I will tell you, you are ready the moment you know you don't have it. And you are utterly divested of competence. And you are utterly dependent upon the Spirit. In that moment, God is pleased to use you. He must increase. We must decrease. The Spirit of God must fill us. We must be emptied. Because life is in the Son. It's in the Son. It's not in you. It's in the Son. That's what it looks like. To walk in the Spirit. That's what it feels like. It's a, and you, don't you know, do you know the difference, those of you who are believers in Christ? Can, you, can I just call on the Spirit of the Lord for that discernment? Do you know what I mean? You know it when you're like running and burnout and your mind's flooded with a whole bunch of things and anxieties have overtaken you. You know it. You know it. And then you know it when the peace comes and the clarity comes and the Spirit rushes in. And you know that all of a sudden you have not this sense that I can do everything, but the sense that I'm, I know the one who can. And he's got me. And I want to walk in him. That's what it means to walk by the Spirit. What would it mean to walk in the baptism, the water, the name of Christ? It, it, it would mean that we are a people who are believing and repenting all the time. That that is our meat and our drink, is to believe and repent. It's to believe and repent. It's to believe and repent. Do you know that the the real work of the Christian life is believing what you believe? Right? It's believing what you believe because because you're going to consistently lose sight of what you profess to believe. And and you're going to run around, as my grandmother would say, like a chicken with your head cut off, (laughs) until God restores some gospel sanity to your life. And then all of a sudden you pause. You begin to realize, oh yeah, yeah, that's, the belief is restored. Repentance is never living up to the name that is Christ that's on you. We never live up to the name that is Christ in us. We're always falling short of the pedigree of which we've been bought by. You know, Paul says, walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I think how you walk worthy is not that you earn the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but you walk in a way to show that the gospel is worthy. Christ is worthy. Do you know when you make Christ worthy? When you show that you need him. When you show that he's precious and that you can do nothing apart from him. You see how beautiful he is? See what a treasure he is? We think, oh, I'm making Christ precious when I'm perfect. No. If you keep doing that, you're going to get worse. 
The more that you show yourself needy, the more that you cast your cares upon Christ, the more you prize Christ, the more you live an open life of integrity, of need for Christ in the world around, the more that he's treasured, the more beautiful he becomes. And the deeper the testimony of Christ lodges within you, it sticks more and more. And finally, blood. What would it mean to walk in the witness of the blood? I think very simply, Luke chapter 9, it means that you take up your cross daily and you follow him. It means that you live a life resigned to sacrifice everything for the Lord Jesus Christ. Do You see, when the Spirit of Christ comes into our life and begins to transform us and He presses in the testimony of the water and the blood. Jesus' life is our life and Jesus' life was one of water, beloved status, beloved glorious status of being a son. And do you know what that means? That means also going to the cross because that's what Jesus did. It means going to the cross. It means that the same path that Jesus took from water to blood is the path that we take from water to blood. Hasn't that been the case for those of you who've been baptized, whether converted later in life and professed faith and baptized or as a child growing into the promises of God by faith? You start out with this beautiful cleansing and the rest of your life feels like you're carrying a cross. Because you are. You are. The difference is you can goad against the cross or you can take it up. You can see it as an obstacle to be overcome or you can see it as the prize of being counted worthy to suffer like Him. The way Paul put it in Romans 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, and then notice this, Provided we suffer with Him in order that we might be glorified. The Spirit, love it, resonates with our spirit that we are sons of God, water, provided that we suffer blood like Him. George MacDonald said years ago that Jesus suffered not that we wouldn't suffer, but that when we suffered, We'd suffer like Him. When we suffered like Him, here's the beauty. Is that on the other end of the suffering is the glory of the resurrection. And the glory of the resurrection is not merely something in the future. It's something we experience even in life now. You see, the eternal life that has been for us in Christ is not some life forever, merely. It's the life of Christ living in us now. And the life of Christ that lives in us now is the dwelling of the Holy Spirit who Paul says raised Jesus from the dead. This is why when you go through suffering and you bear the cross and you have all these wonderings as to what God is doing and you want to subpoena Him to bring Him to trial for what he's done, and you're pulling your hair out thinking, I hope that I'm believing the right thing. I hope that these eggs that I've got in this basket are worthy to hold. What 
is I've got in him because I got my whole life in him. And then you go for a little while. He's with you in the valley of the shadow of death. You go a little while, you look back and you see that he has brought you to another plateau. And you look back and you say, I never want to go through that suffering again, but I know I could have never got to here had I not passed through it. And you know what you're experiencing in that moment? Resurrection. Eternal life. Jesus captured a little more of you. It's, it's overtaking you a little bit more. I was confiding in a dear friend. I guess it was two weeks ago on the phone of a struggle that I was dealing with. I knew I could confide in this friend because he had dealt with a lot of struggles and I had seen how the Lord had changed his life. I was pretty desperate when I was talking to him. Felt very needy and lost and needing a voice of wisdom and help. He was that. But one of the things he said to me, Nate, he says, I think because of this, what I was going through, you're on the cusp of the most exhilarating part of the Christian life. Because you won't know Christ until you suffer like Him. And it only gets better from there. So take heart, friends. Christ is crucified for you. His witness is in you. And on the other side of that is the glory that He has destined for you. Let's pursue that together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, confirm these words to our hearts. Bring the witness of the Spirit to show us the water and the blood. Let us find the life that is in the Son. And let us live that life. We ask it in your holy name. Amen.